You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Well, good morning. I hope you brought your Bible this morning. You need a Bible every time you come to Harvest Bible Chapel because the first three words of the sermon are always the same. What are those three words? Open your Bible. Find Luke chapter 1. If you want extra credit in church this morning, you can put your finger there and flip back to the last three verses of the Old Testament. That's in the book of Malachi, okay? Now, let me ask you a question here this morning. Have you ever felt forgotten by God? Have you ever felt like God could speed up his plan a little bit in your life? Have you ever felt like there were some promises God made that he's yet to fulfill in your life? Well, if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever doubted God, if you've ever felt like giving up on God because you felt like God somehow had forgiven up on you, this message is for you today. The title of the message is Behold, when I feel forgotten by God. So we're going to jump right into it here this morning, and we're going to get basically a summary of the whole Bible in the introduction of this message here, because you'll never understand what we're about to read in the Gospel of Luke until you understand what surrounds it and what came before it, okay? So let me just begin by reading in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to pick up in verse 5. It says this, In the days of Herod king of Judah. Stop right there. Luke is giving us the context for what his entire gospel is going to say. Everything that Luke is going to say is about to happen, happened in the days of Herod. Now, when, you, when we read that, it probably doesn't have a lot of meaning to us, but if I said something like this to you, <clears throat> everything that I'm about to tell you happened in the days of Bill Clinton, Okay, Would that kind of give you a context for what the history was like, what the political environment was like, uh, what the the people of God were living under? Uh, In one of these days, a couple of decades from now, we'll be able to say we live through the days of Donald Trump. Okay, so that will give you a context of what the, the, the environment was like. So when Luke says in the days of King Herod, he is trying to tell us everything that happened happened in this very volatile political context. Now, in saying that, let me just let you know, Luke in his gospel is opening to us a season in which the people of God have not heard from God for 400 years. No promises, no prophets, no angels, no revelation to the people of God for 400 years. And let me give you the context of all of this. You remember the history of the Old Testament? We've walked quickly through the Old Testament in the last couple of years around here. There were some promises that God made in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12 to a man named Abraham. He basically made Abraham these four promises. He said, I'm going to give you a land of your own. We call that the promised land. We know that is the nation of Israel today. It was known as the promised land. He wasn't living in the promised land. God is going to move him into a land that's not his own and give it to him because God keeps his promises. That was the first promise he made. I'm going to give you a land. Secondly, I'm going to make you a great nation. That was, I'm going to, what if God came to you and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I mean, like 
Millions of people are going to be born from your descendants and they're going to make, they're going to become a great nation. The only problem with that was Abraham was married to Sarah who was infertile. She was unable to have children. So God was going to have to do a miracle to fulfill promise number two. The third promise he made was I'm going to bless you and make you a, and give you a, a name that is great. Very important word, a name that is great. And so an undeserved blessing from God. And then the fourth promise was, God is going to bless all nations through you, Abraham. So you got the four promises. I'm going to give you a promised land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to bless all people through you. That was the promise made back in Genesis chapter 12. And all through the Old Testament, we see the rise and the fall of this promise. It looks like it's coming and then it looks like it's about to die. And he resurrects the promise. The people go in and out of disobedience and idolatry before God, which means God has to take them in and out of seasons of discipline and chastisement. They go in and out of slavery under four and God's, it looks like the promise is about to die. And when is God ever going to forget, fulfill his promise? God, have you forgotten us? This was always the question that was going through hundreds of years of the Old Testament. I am now summarizing the entire Old Testament for you in less than 90 seconds. Are you taking notes? Are you keeping up? Are you still with me? Okay. If you want to, the long version, you should read the book. It, it would take you a while, but you can start and keep, keep reading through that. Okay. So we get to the end of the Old Testament and here's what happens. This great nation who once was living in the promised land is now taken into exile. They are taken out of the promised land, entering into God's judgment under Babylon. Miraculously, God delivers them from Babylon and the exiles return to the promised land. They rebuild the temple, which has been destroyed. And they wait and they wait. And the last thing we read in the Old Testament are these three verses from the book of Malachi. These are God's last words in the Old Testament. What's the first word he said? Remember. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Remember the Ten Commandments? The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Remember, in other words, don't forget the promises because God hasn't forgotten his promises. Remember. And then what's the next word he says? Behold. It's the title of our series, isn't it? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And with those words, God closes the pages of the Old Testament and does not speak for 400 years and the people have to wait. God, have you forgotten us? Remember that promise you made? Remember, remember we've, been, we've been remembering your law, but have you been remembering us? And God gives them this very last promise. I will send you a prophet. The same type of prophet as this guy Elijah, which you can read about in the Old Testament. He's going to have the same boldness and he's going to have the same, uh, he's going to give you the, the same 
revelation and point to the same things as a reminder of God's promises. That is the context in which Luke says, in the days of King Herod, king of Judah. Now let me tell you about this guy named Herod, okay? So here's what was happening. People were remembering God's promises. They're, they're obeying the Ten Commandments. And yet in the year 63, A, 63 BC, 63 years BC, Rome occupies the promised land. The Roman occupation takes place and they set up an oppressive government and the oppressive governor that they chose was actually a man who had Hebrew blood. He was a he, had, he was a Jewish descendant, and his name was Herod. Now, they called him Herod the Great, and he was the first in a long line of other Herods that his son and other people, they kept calling them Herods, kept naming them the same name. So this, this oppressive governor named Herod takes occupation, and he rules in Israel, the Promised Land, from 63 B.C. until the year 4 B.C., and that's the year that Luke begins to refer to in his gospel. Herod had an ability to pacify the Jews uh, because he was kind of Jewish, but he really wasn't concerned about God. He was just concerned about them not rebelling against the Roman government. As long as they paid their taxes, then everything was going to be fine. He was known as the king of the Jews. Herod the great. Here's the first point of the message. I will trust God's goodness in my barrenness. It continues here in verse 5. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. The name Zechariah means the Lord has remembered. Lest you thought he had forgotten you. God chooses a man whose name is the Lord has remembered. And we begin to read this incredible story. This priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. So he was a priest. Now, there were 24 divisions of priests that had the responsibility of temple worship. They were the worship leaders in ancient Israel, and they would offer the sacrifices, and they would pray the prayers, and they were kind of the mediators between God and man on a human level, and they were placeholders for what one day would be Jesus. But these priests had the responsibility of representing the people before the Lord and sacrificing. Now, 24 divisions of priests. Zechariah was part of the eighth division called Ab uh, Abijah, there were 750 priests in each division, which means there were 18,000 priests. That'll be, that'll be important later. They went to the temple twice a year and they ministered for a week at a time. So they were at the temple performing these worship services two weeks out of the year. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. We'll call her Liz. Her name means his promise. So what do you get when Zechariah marries Elizabeth? The Lord has remembered his promise. Lest you think God has forgotten you after 400 years. 
The story continues in verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? What's the last thing God told his people to do in the last couple of verses of the Old Testament? Remember the law of God. Walk in his promises and say, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zach and Liz, they are... They are doing the last thing God told them to do. They were righteous. They lived right. Do you know anybody that lives right? Do you even think that that's possible in our culture today with all the pressure? Listen, if you know somebody that lives right, it's because they're remembering the promises of God and you can live right too. And these commandments, they haven't given up on these commandments. They're faithful to the Lord. Now, People that are righteous and are obeying the commandments in spite of all of the pressure to compromise, wouldn't you think those people would be God's favorites and probably answer all their prayers because they're doing everything they know to do right? And yet, look at what it says in verse 7. But they had no child because Liz was barren and both were advanced in years. Can you imagine how they must have prayed for a child? This was the worst possible news that you could have because it was, they, they were very vulnerable as old people. They had nobody to take care of them. There were no 401ks. There were no nursing homes. Your children took care of you, which by the way is not a bad plan for parents that get old, okay? That, that, that should still happen today. And so we, we see them, they're probably very disappointed. They probably have faced several miscarriages. And there are people in here that immediately can identify with Zach and Liz because you've prayed for a child and for whatever reason, God has not made that biologically possible for you. And you may have faced the struggle of disappointment and you may have wondered, God, have you forgotten us? Don't you love children? Don't you love us? Why haven't you given us a child? We see all these other people that are able to have children. Why can't we have children? And it is a good thing to desire children. But it is a bad plan to demand children. There's three things that Zach and Liz did not do in their disappointment. First of all, they didn't turn against each other. They remained faithful to their marriage covenant. So many times in the Old Testament, what happens when, when a, a man's married to an infertile wife? What does he do? He just goes and commit adultery and just go, let's go, let's go find a, a wife that can produce a child. Bad plan. Bad plan. Zechariah didn't do that. He didn't turn against Elizabeth. He remained faithful to his marriage covenant. Secondly, they didn't turn bitter toward God. They kept faithfully obeying and believing that God will fulfill his promise. The third thing they didn't do is they didn't turn their children into idols, their lack of children. It's one thing to desire children, but when you demand children, you can turn that which you long for most into a very substitute for God. So... Maybe you can identify with Zach and Liz. Maybe the issue is not barrenness of not having a child, but maybe for you it's not having a spouse. God, I want to be married and I'm single. God, why? It's my desire. It's my heart desire. I've prayed. God, why have, have you forgotten me? Maybe for some of you it's a lack of money or it's a lack of a friend or a lack of a relationship and just a lack of joy. It's like, God, why is it the thing that I desire most I don't have? Here's what you have to do. When you think you've been forgotten by God, you have to choose to trust God's goodness in 
my barrenness. And that's exactly what they did. In the absence of these things, it didn't mean that God had forgotten them. God answers every prayer. Did you know that? He's got three general answers. Yes, no, or wait. And God answers every prayer according to the way you would have prayed if you knew everything God knows. Can you trust God even when you don't have the right sense and the right prayer that God will translate it into the prayer you would have prayed if you knew everything that God knows? Look at verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And so the people would come and they would offer their prayers before God. Have you ever seen incense? It's really cool. It's just really, the smoke kind of ascends to God. It's kind of like our prayers. And it was symbolic of the people that were ascending their prayers to God. What do you think the number one prayer was for Zach and Liz. God, would you give us a child? And God, would you turn the nation back to you? And God, would you fulfill those promises you made? What about this prophet that's like, we keep reading on the last page of the last Old Testament, there's this prophet gonna come and he's gonna turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And would you turn us into fathers with children? And all kinds of prayers that were probably going up as they prayed. And yet, look at what happened. A miraculous thing happens. Zechariah is chosen by Lot to be the priest of the year to go into the, the most holy place and to offer these. They, they, they had a lottery. They had a Powerball lottery, apparently. There were 18,000 priests. Not everybody could go in. Only one could go in. And so guess what? Zach won the lottery that day, and he got to go in. And so God arranged that. Look at verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, again, I told you last week, Luke adds all these details for us as clues. I'm not making this stuff up. If you were just making this stuff up, why would you put in the detail it was on the right? You know why he put that in there? Because the angel was on the right. This stuff actually happened. And so he's writing, this angel shows up and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, you think? And fear fell upon him. Luke mentions angels 23 different times in his gospel. Do you believe in angels? You believe in angels? I believe in angels because I believe the Bible, and the Bible talks about angels. Um, 80, 92% of Americans, according to one poll, believe in angels. 20% of Americans say they've actually encountered one. And you hear, have you ever heard the stories of people talk about angels? They're like, man, you know, um, I needed this recipe for like the cinnamon rolls at Christmas and this angel appeared and he told me this, this special angelic recipe, you know. And, or somebody would say, I, I was praying at the, at the mall for a parking lot on Black Friday and the angels, you know, moved a car out of the way. And I, and listen, if you, there's, there's one way that you can be sure you've encountered an angel. You know what it is? If you fell on your face in terror when you encountered him. If you kept driving, not an angel, okay? If you kept baking, not an angel, okay? Because most of us think of like an angel being like the little ceramic fat little baby angels, the little cherub angels that, you know, sit on the counter over there. Or we think about Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life, okay? Now, that is not the picture of a biblical angel, okay? It's, think more like of professional wrestling, 
okay? Or, or a Navy SEAL. That's the picture we get when an angel shows up in the Bible. And so that's why Zechariah fell on his face in terror and in fear when he saw this angel. And so in verse 13, it says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. And then what does he, what does he do? He calls him by name. What does his name mean, by the way? The Lord remembers. Do not be afraid. The Lord remembers. You see, the cure for fear is knowing God hasn't forgotten you. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Not everybody, but many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great. Who was the king at this time? Herod what? Herod the Great. And the angel shows up and says, Forget about Herod. He's not all that great. I'm going to give you a son, and he will be great. And his name will be John. He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. When, God, when the angel says he will be great, the, the actual Greek word is megos. He will be mega great. He, because he has a mega mission and he has a mega message to preach and he will be a megaphone for God's voice pointing people to Jesus. We'll find more about him later. It says he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says he's not supposed to drink um, because he needs to be great. Now listen, the Bible doesn't forbid all drinking in every circumstance. I've chosen not to drink. I don't drink. I don't think you should drink. Some of you drink too much, and the thing that's keeping you from being great is you drink too much. If you want to be great, maybe one of the steps you want to do is like abstain from the freedom that you might have to, to drink. That's, he wanted him to be great. He didn't want anything hindering his greatness. And as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, it says from his mother's womb. This is one of the reasons that we are pro-life. We believe that life begins at conception in the mother's womb. There is personhood. There is identity. John was known by God, loved by God, named by God while he was still in the womb. There's a pro-life argument for you. Verse 16 says, he will turn many. Does that word sound familiar? Turn? Where have we heard that before? He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will, open, he will go before him. See the word him there? There's a pronoun there. It doesn't have an antecedent. Do you know who the antecedent is? He will go before him. Who's the him? We know the end of the story, right? He will go before Jesus in spirit and in power of Elijah. Hmm. What do you think the readers of Luke thought when they saw that? It's like a hyperlink. You ever get an email message or spam or something? It's like click on this link to get the coupon and you click on the link and it sends you to another web page. There's hyperlinks all through Luke's gospel. And when they saw Elijah, do you know where the hyperlink took them back to? Malachi, the last three verses. Wait a minute. God promised 400 years ago he was going to send to us a prophet 
Elijah. And Luke is, he is recording what the angel says. He's going to have the spirit of Elijah. And he's going to turn, notice, the hearts of the fathers to the children. Sound familiar? And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So he's going to do these three things. He's going to turn many to the Lord. The word turn is the word that we would use for repentance. He's going to turn us away from sin and to Obedience. He's going to turn us away from our idolatry and our immorality. He's going to turn us to purity and holiness before the Lord. That's going to be the ministry and the purpose of this son. And he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children in fulfillment of the last verse of the Old Testament. John is going to be the last Old Testament prophet in fulfillment of God's promise. And he says he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. Isn't that amazing? The critical role that a father has in the heart of his child, an irreplaceable role of fathers. It's a father's job to remind their children of God's promise and the fulfillment of God's promise in Jesus. So many things that are broken in our culture today are broken because of the failure of fathers to have a heart for their children. And God today wants to turn the hearts of the fathers in this room to their children. And that was the role that God had chosen for John. But ultimately, John was to make ready a people to be prepared for one who's coming later. John's job was to get people ready for Jesus. Everybody needs a good prophet in their life to help them get ready to meet Jesus, right? I kind of see that as my job every time when I show up. I can't, I can't fix you. I'm not your savior. I, I can't forgive your sin. All I can do is make you ready to meet the guy that can't. And so that's the purpose for everything we do around here is to get you ready, to prepare you to, to see things and to believe things that are otherwise would be unbelievable so that you can meet Jesus and he can fix what's broken in your life, namely your sin and your disobedience and your rebellion and your hard-heartedness toward God. God wants to use a prophet to turn your heart toward the Lord so that you can trust God in your barrenness. Verse 14 says, we've already read that. It, it says that he's going to have joy and, and gladness. I don't know what you, as a father, the, can you imagine the, the wheels that are turning in Zechariah's head right now? What kind of father he's going to be? And he says he's going to have joy and gladness. I don't know about you. I think he was glad and had joy that he was going to have a son. But more importantly than that is that his son was going to do things that were going to impact the world. I don't know about you. The things that I get the most joy out of about my children are the, not the great things they do academically, not the great things they do 
athletically, but the great things they do for the Lord. And so, yes, Zach's going to have a lot of joy, not just because he had a child, but because his child was going to point to God's child. His son was going to point to God's son. Here's the second thing to do when you think you've been forgotten by God. I will learn from God's discipline in my unbelief. How did Zach react to this good news? Look at verse 18. And Zach said to the angel. Now, is it ever really a good idea to actually talk back to an angel? Um, that's a bad plan. I just, I think yes, sir, would have been the most appropriate response or amen. And yet he questions the angel's judgment and says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. It's one thing to question the angel, but then to throw your wife under the bus and talk about how old and crusty she is and give geriatric arguments for why the angel cannot be right about this. I mean, come on, angel. She's so old. I mean, when she was born, the Dead Sea was just starting to get sick. I mean, <laughs> and she, she's so... I got more. She's so... She's so old, she walked into an antique store and they made an offer. I got one more. She's so old, if you told her to act her age, she'd die. And that's all, okay? It's like, this cannot be happening, all right? So he starts these arguments with God in verse 19. It says, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Shut up. And he did. I stand in the presence of God. Where have you, where you been standing? I mean, come on. Who are you to question? What? I was sent to speak to you. I didn't make this message up. I'm just the messenger. That's all angels do is they deliver God's messages. And he says, I bring you good news. This is not bad news. This is good news. Why can't you believe this? And verse 20, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple and they came out. It's like, where is this guy? It shouldn't take that long. Guys that pray long prayers in church or preach long sermons, like when is he ever going to get done? And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them. So this is the invention of sign language. And uh, to them, and he remained mute. And so he says, you're going to have a son. Zach says, no, -uh. he says, shut up. And he did. So just for nine months, you don't get to talk anymore because you talked back to an angel. And so you, you need to understand you're going to go into timeout. This is going to be discipline for you. You're going to learn some lessons that you couldn't learn in the temple over nine months. Now, listen, when God sends you into a season of discipline, there's things that you have to remember there. It's not punitive if you're a believer in Christ. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But God does have some things that He has to teach us from time to time when we are 
slow to believe. He wants us to be a part of his salvation plan. He wants you to be a part of what he's doing. So sometimes he has to put you in time out to convince you of things that you are slow to believe. And God's discipline is always in response to unbelief. And God's discipline trains us to trust him. Now listen, you always want to learn the lesson the first time so you don't have to repeat the class. And if you're in a season where you're under discipline, it may be because you haven't believed what God said the first time. Look at verse 23. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Liz conceived, oh, wow, what a miracle, just like God promised. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. Thus says the Lord has done, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Two things she recognizes. Number one, God's been watching. God's been looking on me. I haven't been hidden from God. He's heard my prayer. He's watched my anguish. And the second thing, in doing this, he has removed my reproach. The word reproach means disgrace or shame. If you're here this morning and somebody has disgraced you and shamed you because you haven't measured up, can you imagine Liz with all of the other young mothers? I wonder what's wrong with her. I wonder, she, she must have sinned against God or God would have given her a baby. That, that's the language of self-righteous, arrogant, condescending people who don't understand the purposes and the promises of God. And if somebody has done that toward you, first of all, on behalf of the body of Christ, I apologize to you. But the Lord can remove your reproach if you're willing to believe and learn the lesson in your unbelief. Here's the last thing. I will magnify God's mercy in my praise. Now we're gonna skip a section here. We'll come back to that next week because that's a different story. This story continues in verse 57 and it picks up with Zechariah and of course here's what we see in verse 57 now the time came for Liz to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her notice that they they saw God's giving this child as a mercy not as an entitlement God isn't we don't deserve anything from God. Everything God does for us is an act of his mercy. And so they understood it was God's mercy. Verse 59, and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they would call, they would have called him Zechariah after his father. So I'm sure, you know how everybody's got baby name suggestions for you? You know, the family gets together. I think you should call him this. I think you should call him that. And so in verse 60 says, but his mother answered and said, no. He shall be called John. Where do you think she got that name? But you have to remember, Liz didn't see or hear the angel. And her husband, Zechariah, couldn't tell her what the angel said because he was mute. Maybe he wrote it out. Maybe they had some elaborate sign language. Maybe he drew the name John on a piece of paper, which apparently he could have done because of what we read later. And she believed her husband. She trusted her husband had seen what he said he saw. 
You see, a godly wife trusts and follows her husband. And it is easier to follow a husband when the wife knows the husband is following and is listening to the Lord. And so don't let your extended family drive a wedge in between you and your spouse. She chooses to believe her husband and to go and to follow the leadership of her husband in spite of all the peer pressure to do otherwise. Can you imagine what her relatives, all the cousins and the aunts and the uncles probably thought about Zechariah? They probably thought he was a lunatic because he saw some kind of a vision. Verse 62 says, and they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted him to, call, to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. Now, I want you to notice something really interesting. When they asked Liz, what do you want to call him? She said, he shall be called John. Future. From this time forward, he will be called John. When they asked Zechariah, what do you want to call him? Zechariah says, his name is John. It, it has been John for nine months because the angel named him. So now everybody's getting on the program. And so the moment that Zechariah declares what God has declared. The moment that John agrees with God about his name, when he wrote out the name, notice what happened. It says in verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. Not cursing God in the midst of discipline, but blessing God, praising God, and fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all those who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then shall this child be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. Sound familiar? His son had been filled with the Holy Spirit since his conception. So this was not like father, like son. This was like son, like father. The father's like rising up to the greatness of his son. And he prophesied saying, now from verse 68 to the end of the chapter, we have this wonderful hymn, this wonderful chorus, this wonderful praise, this blessing of God that Zechariah gives. And it's filled with theology. Notice what it says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. What is he saying? He's saying he fulfilled his promise. All those promises of the Old Testament. He has fulfilled them. Past Tense. He's forward thinking, believing that what God said is true. Verse 69, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Again, in the line of Abraham coming down through David, we are going to be blessed through this promised son. Verse 70, as he spoke by mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised. If you want to sum up all of the Old Testament, two words, mercy promised. And Luke is writing 
so that we can know the mercy that was promised has been kept. And God's plan has not been forgotten. The mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant and the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. And so he goes all the way back to the promise made. They are in the promised land. God is making a great name. He will be great. And all the people are going to be blessed through the fulfillment of God's promises. You see, Zach rejoiced not only because he would have a son named John, but because his son named John would point to God's son named Jesus. That's coming in a couple of weeks. It's called Christmas, right? And Zach's joy was not just that the time of Liz's barrenness was about to be over, but Israel's barrenness was about to be over. God had fulfilled the first part of his promise to Abraham and Sarah by giving them a son named Isaac. God's going to fulfill the final part of his promise to Abraham through Mary by giving us his son named Jesus. And John's going to point to him. Verse 74 that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people, the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I'll stop right there. The promise is this. It's not about that they would be delivered from Herod the Great and the political oppression. Zechariah knows that what God is doing is fulfilling his promise to save us from our sin. That's our greatest enemy. And if you've been living in darkness and somehow living in barrenness, thinking that if somehow you had a, a son or a better son or more money or a better job, that somehow that would save you, you need a better savior. His name is Jesus. And until your eyes are open and this light shines in your heart, you won't remember the right promise. I wanna invite you, as the ushers come forward, we're gonna receive our offering. I want to invite you to remember the goodness of the Lord in your barrenness. And if you've never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sin, this would be the greatest day to do all of that. Mike is going to come. He's going to lead us in response here. Will you trust the promises of God? As we receive the offering, just remain seated, but let this song ascend to the Lord as your prayer.